0: Hello, and welcome to Glossonomia, conversations about the sound of speech. My name is Eric Armstrong, and with me
1: here today is Phil Thompson. Hi there. I am Phil Thompson. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm really looking forward to conversing today about these sounds. So today is a
0: consonant day on glossonomia, and last week we were talking about the vowel sound oo, and we thought it would make sense to follow up oo with the closest consonant sound to oo, which is the w sound and its voiceless pair, wha wa and wo wha, what we might call the w sound or sounds uh are sounds that appear in English not in all languages of the world um so we'll have some fun figuring out how these sounds come about uh Phil
1: can you tell us a little bit about uh how how we make a wha sound yeah we introduced i think it was last consonant time the idea of approximants and uh so The W sound is a voiced approximant. It's a funny kind of approximant because it's a labial velar approximant. There are two bits approximating. Just to rehearse what an approximant is, somewhere in between the obstruction that causes friction or stopping that makes a consonant and the simple change of shape and resonance that makes a vowel, there's something in between where the articulator's come close to or approximate one another. And it's in that coming close, the sound change made there, that we get what have sometimes been called semi-vowels. One book I was reading called them semi-consonants. So in the case of the w sound, uh, the things approximating are the lips and the velum. All approximants, as we talked about last time, are voiced only because you could make an unvoiced approximate, it just wouldn't sound like very much. So in this case, your lips come together. Uh, They come together in an interesting way, which we've again already talked about, which is that the lip corners sort of come together and the lips push out. Uh, And it's the outside ring of the muscle fibers around your mouth that squish the inside ones forward. Uh, In another conversation I was having uh, online with Eric Singer and Dudley Knight, uh, there was an interesting term used, outrounding or inrounding. And outrounding was used to refer to the outer parts of that structure squishing the lips forward in a sort of flared trumpet way. And that's really what we're talking about. Rather than inrounding the inner parts, compressing together to make a tighter little hole. So, in this case, making a your lips really do come forward a bit. They come close and they make a little round circle. It's sort of a kiss-like structure, right? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Uh, It's like a fish. It's like a kiss. Uh, It's lips forward. Uh, Then also, the back of the tongue is coming up towards the velum, hence labial velar. And if you were to make an oo sound, which we did in the last show, oo, 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 and just make it slightly closer together and just for a moment, uh, you would end up with this approximant. Uh, it really makes sense to me when talking about this one to call it a semi-vowel, because it is in a way, and certainly as we talk about the history of it, this will become evident. It is in a way the use of an oo sound in a position where you would normally use a consonant. So is there really a difference between oo and when? Yeah. It's a difference of how close together the lips come, but also the very short duration and the smooth flow into the next vowel. So I think we can have stronger versions of
0: the W sound, if you will. Uh, if you're doing woo, 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 <laughs> yes. you're going to have a, a more intense W. If you're saying when, you can have quite a weak W um, because you you have a contrast between the vowel and the consonant.
1: I mean, if I say the phrase UN or RUEN, how, <laughs> what's the difference between saying you when you go to the store or UN, United Nations? It's really a very subtle difference about how close together those lips are coming. Uh, I'll take a moment to say that uh, Arthur Lessac really uses this as one of the ways of minimizing glottal initializations of, of vowels. He suggests that when you end an ooh sound, you use it as a W to go on to the next vowel. So you would say, you, wan, die. Uh, right,
0: and similarly on the, the rounded diphthongs. so uh, you might say, how are you, or go out,
1: a little, and it, right? It makes a little, a little sense. Possible. Yeah, and our, our students will be looking at it, and, you know, they're accustomed to seeing the word how spelled with a W, so they're really gung-ho about the idea of not only making that as a transcription, but then showing me that it must be true because they can do the sound. Well, yeah, sometimes you do. Uh, Sometimes you do. So um, you know the 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 one
0: hazard of that. I'm reminded of Popeye with "I am what I am," yeah. uh where he is essentially using his "I" and putting a semi-vowel "yod" to link into the vowel of "am," but he does it so s- s- intensely that yeah. it starts to sound like he's saying "yam" instead of "I am," um, and uh, certainly there are there are prescriptions in other speech texts about avoiding that quality that you want to hear I am without it going all the way to I am or how how are you without going to how are you.
1: I mean, there's maybe um, a
0: question. Uh, you go, you go. Well, I think we might have had the same point, that at certain certain contexts and certain speeds, when you're going very quickly, a little abrupt W-like quality or a little yawed to slip in that connection uh, can help to uh, separate the, the syllables and give you a sense of um, syllabicity and rhythm that can be very helpful, particularly in verse speaking. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And, and frankly, we can just look at how language is spoken. Uh, that happens. Uh, it, uh, people do a wide variety of little bits and pieces of w and w and things in between. I suppose I should flip this around and talk about the paired sound with this, which is hua. That sound is a labial velar. That is to say, it's made in the same way as the one we just talked about. So it's a cognate in that sense. It's made in the same place. It's, however, made in a slightly different manner uh, because it's a labial velar fricative an unvoiced labial velar fricative, at least as it's described in the IPA. You could certainly do uh, an unvoiced labial velar approximant. It just wouldn't be very loud. Audible. (laughs) Yes,
0: exactly. (laughs) The argument is that you don't have voiceless approximants because they're so loose, so open that they don't make any noise. And so to get noise, you have to have turbulence, and turbulence only happens on a fricative.
1: And that could be a function of of more constriction in the place of articulation, or it could be a function of just increased airflow. So Mm. if I make a distinction between what and what, it could be that I'm simply in that devoiced area sending more air, what. Or it could be that I'm tightening it up a bit, what. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about the history of the sounds a little bit later, but those two sounds are not quite cognates, but we're associating them together because they're very, very close indeed. And, and and that in some
0: accents and dialects that they, they are partnered very well with one another, yes. that um, they go together in that way. And I just wanted to pick up on this idea of uh, it having a little bit of more air pressure behind it in that uh, sometimes voiced and voiceless are, we use the terms... Uh, fortis and lenis, and if it is a, if a voiceless sound is lenis, then it has a greater strength to it, and so that the fricative nature might be part of that greater air pressure energy that comes on a fortis consonant, a voiceless fortis consonant. Absolutely. Um, now, I, I generally don't perceive voiceless consonants in terms of their their strength or weakness. At it's not part of the recipe in my head. I'm thinking voiced and voiceless. I don't think, oh, well, oh, that's that's much stronger. Uh, but there, I think for a voiceless sound to be heard as sort of a parallel sound to a voiced one, it does take greater air pressure to make enough sound to match.
1: Would you say that's true? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, when we're talking about Fortis and Linus, we're, we're talking about those. Those are perceptual constructs in a way. And so components of them uh more fricative more airflow it's just a different way of thinking about the same thing and i do i, I do think that i i didn't really have the phoneme as a distinct phoneme uh, in, in my own speech before graduate school me either and so it's hard for me to perceive so i've had to make it from the ground up and insert it in places I think it's useful. So that's not the same sort of perceptual task as I imagine somebody who speaks it. Uh, my uncle, I think I may have told this story to you, but not on this podcast. Uh, my uncle... Oh, and if you've done it before, repeat <laughs> it. It's got to be a <laughs> good right. one. So he, he used phua. Uh, what when He was an RP speaker, but uh, an Irish RP speaker. And so I asked him, why do you, is it because you're Irish that you say what and when? Or is it because you're an academic that you say what and when? Uh, Because as we'll get into later, that's not a very common RP characteristic. Uh, His answer was not informative at all. He said, well, it's spelt that way. And that was the end of his answer. So it was for him sort of unexamined, I guess I'd say. Even though his career, he's a linguist. uh, a paleographer so he should be paying attention <laughs> to this sort of thing uh, but he just felt it was one of those sort of foundational principles that it's spelled what so you say what uh, even when all around were doing the <laughs> something else uh, yes and so for him he, he probably doesn't have much perception a person who who uses that sound isn't necessarily thinking about those sounds in terms of their construction but maybe in terms of how strong or weak they are right um interestingly enough my I I
0: grew up not saying when where why uh, and a, a year and a half ago I noticed that my father said white uh, and I but that's the only one and I, uh, no he, he says it all over the place and I'd never noticed and I was like get out. You don't really say that. You know, I made him say it several times, and he was like, what? 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 What's the matter? Why?" Or he he are you was like, what,
1: what, what? Why are
0: you asking What? Me? Why are you saying I don't know that he does do it on every uh, word spelt WH, uh, but he certainly does it on
1: white. I had and the same experience with my mother when I was in graduate school. I, I called home and said, this crazy man is asking me to do this ridiculous sound that nobody does. <laughs> Uh, not that Dudley, my teacher, was really demanding that I do it, but that I be able to do it. And my mother said, what, what do you mean? I, I do that. <laughs> so it's amazing how little we perceive. Yes, it is
0: amazing. Um, yes, I, I think we often assume that our parents talk like us. Um, and probably parents assume that we talk like them um, and don't, don't really pay that much attention. Um, so... Uh, the uh, uh quality of a wa sound to go back to our wa sound um, it 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 is uh, one of uh, four approximate sounds in english uh wha, i'll call it a w for lack of a better word okay. uh, it is a labiovelar approximant but let's eh, w uh, we have yod the y sound mm-hmm. we have la the lateral approximant go ahead we call it an, an l sound an l <laughs> and we have the r ra sound so we have those four sounds wa ya la and R, and uh each of them is essentially bending the sound the the various formats that are put together to make a vowel sound to a certain degree so uh when you have a wa there is a rise on the second format, whereas the ya sound, the yawed sound, uh, has a falling second format. Can I interrupt for a moment? Uh, it, yeah, sure.
1: Is it true that what you're talking about is the transition between the consonant sound and the vowel sound? That there's a, a, a rising or falling as you move from the ya? Yes. Yeah, so... So w starts by compressing
0: the second format and it releases out of that compression. Mm-hmm. Um y starts by raising the second format and it releasing out of it. And now, we're You know, when you do yi ye yee, ye, E ye, ye, is where the second format is raised on E. So on
1: yi it'll be a slight Slight drop in from y into e. Let me clarify because I think that uh, since we've got Skype going on here, we're using our hands to go up and down. Uh, <laughs> yes, raising is that that part of the spectrum of vibration is higher in pitch, and lowering is that that part is is lower in pitch. So yes. So let's let's
0: try again, drawing a picture in our listeners' ear minds' eyes. Mind's ears mm. I guess the mind's ears of our <laughs> listeners there's a There are a series of formats which on a spectrum look like a series of dark gray bands that go across the screen when you look at a spectrogram of speech at the very bottom would be where the the zero format is the the essentially where the the uh, fundamental frequency is. then there are a series of formats the second, third, and uh, there are usually fourth and fifth, though mm-hmm. most people don't pay much attention to those because it's the relationship of the second and third formats that we're most interested in terms of defining the vowel quality. I thought it was first and say second. That's right?
1: I think it's first and second. We might have to go back there. Yeah,
0: you're right. First and second, third format yeah. is the R quality. Yeah, yeah. Yes? Yeah. So the first and s- yeah. So... uh the relationship of first and second format basically changes the different vowel qualities, yeah? Yeah. And, and the third one is uh,
1: basically ro- the rhotic quality. You could imagine that if you had sliders on an equalizer, a single tone e- is adjusting where the whether the low pitch is at, this frequency or that frequency. The middle pitch is at this frequency or that frequency. The high pitch at this frequency or that frequency. And by adjusting them, you get different harmonic qualities. Uh, If your sliders were not about volume, but about pitch. uh, Yes. In a way, it's sort of as
0: if you were playing chords on a piano and changing from, say, C, E, G in a uh, C chord. You might be shifting from having a, uh, to a minor chord or to uh, uh, a second, you know, that where you're going to move around those inner um, relationships. So each of these, each of these approximants have a slightly different relationship, but all of them have a compression of one or two of the formats and a release out of it. Mm-hmm. And it is in many ways the sort of the release out of that difference that we hear as the the quality of the approximate.
1: I think I've explained that
0: quite poorly, but
1: <laughs> I think I, I think that if it isn't clear our lovely listeners will frame it in a question that we could answer on the next podcast. Yes, that would be great. So, uh
0: of those four, we've got wa ya la and ra W and la can only happen at the beginning of syllables. So, though w is used in English spelling at the ends of words and syllables, it can only be used in, in our speech at the beginning of a syllable. So, for instance, if I have a word like wine, I can initiate with that w sound. If I have a word like how... That really isn't a W at the end of the sound, right? It's a diphthong that closes ow. Oh, it doesn't actually get to W. Now, are
1: you saying that... Yes. If we were to look at that on a spectrograph, that that we wouldn't see the same pattern in Ow as we did in wa? Because... Yes, I think that's true. And... Because we wouldn't get as closed all the way down to an approximant. All right. And... Whereas y and la, uh, wh- which are the ones that can happen after a vowel? Ra and la, yes? Ra can happen. La can
0: happen, yes. And now la is a slightly different vowel, right? Because it's a consonant, because it's a l as opposed to a yeah.
1: in most versions of English. So... Uh, There's overlap here. I guess what I'm I'm trying to get at is that uh, we can say that au is ending with a vowel and wa is beginning with a vowel. But those two sounds, though different and spectrographically different, are similar at least. Uh, And there is some similarity, as as mentioned before, between the semi-vowel wa and the vowel u close, but it's not the same. And it's, it's different acoustically on the spectrogram and also different in terms of articulation, in terms of how close your lips come together. And obviously that's true because we make the changes in the spectrogram by changing our articulation. Right. Um, now
0: the question is, can, can R happen at the end of a vowel, or is
1: that a, is that a vowel? In fact, I'm in the classroom that I, that I teach in right now, and, and that's written on the board. Uh, that we, oh, we well, we'll just turn the microphone <laughs> to the board <laughs> exactly. and everyone will. Uh, I, I had essentially written up there, uh, what is it, fire uh, with our coloring and write uh, and tried to transcribe the beginning, r, in the same way as I had transcribed the ending, fire, uh, and blew my students' minds a little bit. But uh, that's not what we're talking about right. today. It is not, yes. So I guess
0: the next thing we should really talk about is uh, the history of these sounds.
1: Yeah. And I think, Phil, you've done some research into this. I have, and it, as often happens, I think, in the best of my research is when I think I understand something and realize that I've got it screwed up. Uh, so I was really under the impression that uh, words in English that have this WH sound, like what, where, and why, uh, that is, if they have it, we'll talk about that later, uh, come from Latin words that are uh, interrogatives, uh, question words, like quo, quo vadis, que, qui, quid, and so forth. Because if you listen very carefully to quo, There's a little component of that that is, whoa. Uh, So it made sense to me that we had taken these Latin words and sort of softened them up. I kind of got that wrong. And in this way, both Latin and English took those forms from an earlier Proto-Indo-European root, which I guess sort of makes sense. Those are the sorts of words that you would have Uh, persistent through a long history of language, and they'd be similar because uh, they're words that everybody uses. What is that saber-toothed tiger doing to me? Uh, So uh, let me talk a little bit about this idea of Indo-European or Proto-Indo-European. I think we've referred to it before, and I'm certainly no expert on it, but this is a proposed or conjectured language. An awful lot of research and history has gone into it, so it's Uh, well accepted that this was a language that existed and its forms as it changed and moved around the planet uh, or around Europe uh, developed into the languages that we have so there was a proto-Indo-European language that had a word for what that had a qu sound in it and Germanic languages took it up in one way and Latin took it up in another way, and that led to French and Spanish and so forth. So it's like a branching tree, and we can conjecture back to what the roots would have been. In the case of, of this sound, the labialized velar plosive, qu, qu, that is to say a k sound with lips around it, qu, 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 okay. goes through a regular process of uh the plosive part of it disappearing. So qua or qua uh, becomes hua, so that becomes quat. That doesn't happen in Latin. For some reason Latin doesn't lose that plosive. So Latin is an exception to this law, the law, by the way, being called Grimm's Law. The same thing happens in a voiced version. There's a gua sound, a voiced velar plosive which is labialized. And that shifts towards w. You can see this in the Welsh word for Wales is gwlad. So there's still a gw, a gw sound there. Uh, but in the rest of English, it's become w. Does that make any sense at all?
0: Yeah. So uh, I, I just want to be clear. What, this Grimm's Law was something uh, Jacob Grimm stated some sort of, Law about how things came into Indo-European from Proto-Indo-European? Uh, uh, sorry, that they, uh, how they a, went,
1: this is the split. How they transformed into yeah. Germanic languages? Exactly, so that uh, it's the transition into Germanic languages that we're particularly concerned with here because that's what gets us into English. Uh, right. So here, I'll, I'll read you a quote. Grimm's Law, also known as the first Germanic sound shift or the Rask's Grimm rule, is named for Jakob Grimm. It's a set of statements describing the inherited Proto-Indo-European stops as they developed into in Proto-Germanic in the first millennium BC. Ah. Uh, okay. So that's responsible for us having in English a distinction, an etymological distinction between words that are words and words that are wh words. And so I think I've got this one right. A whale, the fish, or it's a mammal, but the, uh, it was a whale fish, if I've got that right. Uh, I'm scrolling down here. Yes, whale uh, from the Proto-Germanic qualas. Uh, and it's probably a cognate with the Latin squalus, a kind of large sea fish. So you can see the similarity in those two words, whereas whale, I don't have the etymology of that in front of me, but comes from a different root. So it's not just a mm. peculiarity of spelling. The spelling indicates that there used to be, that there are two different roots to this, so that when I wail and moan or I have welts on my skin, that comes from a different origin than the whale in the ocean. Right.
0: So... uh in many forms of English around the world today, there is little, if any, distinction between words spelt W-H and words that are spelt W. And certainly in my speech and your f- speech, mm-hmm. Phil, we n- naturally don't do foi yeah. um, we, We've learned to do it as a skill, um, to play a certain kind of character. Um, but there are parts of the world where it is common and you know oddly enough when I was growing up I imagined that people who said hua were somehow anglophilic that they that I imagined that this was this must be some elitist <laughs> form of speech because I didn't do it anything I didn't do pro- clearly was elitist um, and uh, then that meant that it must be have come from England, and that I assumed that people in England would be doing it. Um, And I was surprised to learn that uh, actually the English speakers in the south of England lost the hua sound natively in their speech
1: before North Americans did. Um, Were you surprised by that? Yeah, I really was, because... Again, it wasn't my sound, and so many of the other candidates in the fancy speech that I was hearing and learning about were pretty clearly anglophilic. Uh, I assumed, and gosh, it sounds fancy. I don't know why. I, I can't say that because it's just my emotional impression of it. But it seems... But, uh,
0: you know, I'll, I have a, a theory on why yeah. it feels fancy to that to us, that having... Uh, a, that it, it has a, a connection to spelling, and so that I feel like I'm doing something correct <laughs> if I'm somehow representing the spelling in yeah. my speech. So that, that gives it a sense of prestige, and that if I'm not doing that well, then I'm not listening to the spelling, then maybe I'm somehow illiterate right. by, explains by not following the
1: spelling model. Like people say often, uh, they're, they're adding something in which clearly somebody who reads should know, even though that's not really the common pronunciation. Right, um, uh, in the same way, we we don't
0: pronounce k n o w as canoe, um, though people at one time yeah. did. Um, the uh, the other The other reason why I I think of it as prestigious is because it gives me a greater range of colors on my palette, and this this idea of distinction with greater, more distinctive possibilities. Um, uh, is, to my mind, perceived by many people as being um, a little bit more difficult to do, uh, a little bit more challenging to to have more sounds in your palate, and uh, not reduction. In a way,
1: you're pronouncing the etymology of the word, and you're saying that by, by making things that would otherwise be homophones into distinct heterophones, uh, then you may be adding more information there, so so that is I think a, a valid argument, but only if that distinction exists in the minds of the listener does it really do that trick right
0: uh, you know interesting to think that, that that about that question if it exists in the minds of the listener that of course an audience is going to be full of many different kinds of people who are going to associate different things with the the emotional tone of use, the use of hua or wa. And uh, some people will perceive it as, oh, prestigious that you're doing it. Some will perceive it as prissy that you're doing it. I suspect that many people won't ever notice that you're even doing it, uh, unless you're overdoing it and making a big deal of it. Um, and I think that th- that's a fear of mine, that so often for people who are not familiar with this sound, that they overdo it because it's unfamiliar there, when I come, instead of just saying when this I This is come. a sort
1: of crackpot theory of mine, too, I'd say, uh, that it, there's this liminal uh, boundary territory where things are perceived but not recognized, and that seems like it should not be possible, uh, but that we unconsciously perceive certain features of speech which lead us to make conclusions about the character or the character's inner state or background, and that we don't specifically say, "My goodness, he just used that form of speech." Uh, if it's reached that level, then we're doing something different, and we've been taken out of the willing suspension of disbelief.
0: Well, I don't know. I, I I've
1: had people say to me things like,
0: "That that person's using an awful lot of glottal stops," and on on reflection, I've got thought they're not using any glottal stops what the heck are they perceiving and they're perceiving something as englishy and they know that englishy people use glottal stops so th- that must be what they're doing um and so they'll use this term for something that they perceive they don't they can't put their finger on what it is they you know so you know in in the same way that my, one might perceive a difference between wa and wah, and say, oh, that sounds Englishy yeah. to me. And you could put a label on it, even if you had no idea what that label meant.
1: And certainly all these sounds come to us from the history of the English language that we all speak. Uh, and th- there were certainly times, that, uh, a long history, where the hua sound, the hua sound was a, a part of the proper pronunciation of, of those words. Uh, In fact, when we get into the spelling history, I think that'll be really made evident. But as you mentioned, the distinction was exported to the United States, to the colonies, uh, and then some other change went on, a loss of that distinction. Uh, And it was retained, at least by some in the United States. And You and I were sort of getting our brains together about this earlier and looking through some books, and I was really surprised to see that according to the evidence that I'm able to find, uh, people like Kenyon and Knott, writing in the 40s, uh, another book that I have about uh, correction of defective speech sounds, all seem to indicate that the prevalent American pronunciation is up until the midpoint of the last century where it seems to have just in time for you and I to be born suddenly gone the other way uh, it seems I, I, I really do think that there's more research to be done here that I don't know about uh, how how has that isoglossic map changed uh, how much has there been a fundamental change in the way Americans and North Americans in general pronounce that sound hmm. and you know uh I I hate to to
0: do this, but the big shift in North America in the second half of the 20th century is the influence of the media, and perhaps we could say maybe this is one one sound that has actually diminished. Uh, that huas very it's very audible on a microphone, um, and perhaps it might be diminished. Um, but less less popular on on I don't know mic. Wh- why? And but so I'm it, deeply
1: suspicious of that suggestion. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. Was, <laughs> another crackpot
0: theory. Um, but the the uh, the of course the corollary to the this this news to us story about it really only uh, coming together, both sounds being combined, just being replaced with the one wa sound in North America in mid 20th century. Is that uh, finding out that really it, that had happened in south of England by the beginning of the nineteenth century? That really kind of blew my mind. I imagined that it might have happened in early twentieth century, um, but uh, by by the beginning of the nineteenth century, that educated speakers were no longer saying when and when. So our Oscar Wilde plays should really not be using that pronunciation. Unless it's a character who sees themselves as, uh, you know, a, a pedant or uh, very careful about well, their speech. Well,
1: that brings me back to this, whether or not we can trust the evidence from our books about how prevalent the pronunciation was. Every book that I'm looking at ha- has a, a certain pedantic point of view, a, a sense that mm. retaining a distinction that's in spelling is righteous somehow. Uh, And so I could understand uh, having a false impression about what really exists based on the wishful thinking of a a set of academics.
0: You know, I think it really, that the the academics' role in society has changed so much in the last Mm -hmm. hundred years that the perception that an academic is here to teach us what to do and that uh, the assumption is that we're wrong and that the academic knows what is right and they're there to inform us, Uh, that's really changed. The academic is now trying to document what the facts are and not trying to sway anyone's opinion about the way to speak, but merely to document the way people actually speak. That uh, no longer are linguists experts on what should be, but on what is. And that that's a really different world view. And in many ways I think people turn to us as speech coaches to be that kind of expert to tell us well, tell us what's right. Um you know, don't tell me what people do, tell me what to do. Yeah, and,
1: um, and that that's a And very we need big only change. take one step back to say, yes, I will tell you what you should do in the following context for the following purposes. And And then we can get back to all of our authoritative pomposity Uh, (laughs) that will make us seem very uh, well-educated. But as long as we make that little proviso, that disclaimer, that uh, there is no absolute propriety, it is essential to language Mm -hmm. that language changes for circumstances. Uh, And I think I've probably said this on the podcast before, but I would like to see if we can adopt the term oral relativism to describe this, that uh, we're uh, equivalent to moral relativism. Uh, So uh, I think it might be time to talk a little bit about the spelling, because the spelling of these two sounds is trippy. Trippy. So if we go all the way back to, uh, we've had so many sounds, uh, so many letters coming out of this wow letter, this Phoenician uh, and also uh, Hebrew, I think, wow is the name of that sound uh, which sort of looks like a Y uh, With a, a a rounded top part instead of a V top part It seems to have morphed into V's and U's and am I right that it also found its way around to G and to F. Uh, I I think that may be true but we've covered so much territory I'm getting a little lost so the symbol has this little V-ish thing it just had a bit of a tail on it in Latin uh, a V symbol was used uh, that is to say that uh, sharp bottomed uh, angle of a V was used to indicate both the consonant viaduct, uh, and the, what am I saying, the vowel, ooh, ooh, exactly. I'm trying to think of Latin examples. That's what's getting me tripped up. And yet, the pronunciation of that symbol, you could understand that veni vidi vici, that labialized but not very fricative, that approximate pronunciation, is very similar to brutus. Uh, So, it makes sense that they would be interchangeable because the pronunciation was very close. In in fact, that's true in Welsh that a a W symbol stands for a vowel as well. So that came into English spelling, that U-V, but there was an extra sound in English. There's V and W. And so we need two different symbols in order to deal with that. And in the case of the voiced approximate W, we ended up, doing a couple of things at a certain point we did a runic symbol called the win and it unfortunately looked sort of like a p and so that was a little bit confusing west could look like pest if we used the wind the win symbol Uh, so that was replaced with although this symbol had already been used a double v uh, and the french name for this letter is w yeah So it's double V, uh, and we call it... uh, And I'm sure the Spanish is very similar, uh, but I'll just wait for my daughter to tell me about that. So we use this W, which is really a double V, and it was initially just two soft-cornered Vs right next to each other. Then there was a little experiment with the win, and that faded away, and was replaced by a sort of overlapped and connected two v's which is the symbol that we now use as w so that's the history of the w the history of the wh the history of the wh or hw is a little bit more complicated the sound was clearly in english as we talked before the grimm's law had made some qu sounds into wh sounds uh so what and where or where i think the sound existed. And some people used HV, V being a sort of U-ish sort of sound. Uh, then it sort of stabilized into HW. However, there have been two other symbols that have been used. One is uh, called the huar, uh, which is, looks sort of like a circle with a little tiny bar in the middle of it, not connecting to anything. It looks sort of like a circle with a dot in the middle of it. And that's a gothic letter. Uh, Then also, a digraph HV symbol was proposed in phonetics in 1900. That really hasn't taken off. In spelling, there's a point at which HW switched around to WH, and that's the one that we've really kept What's interesting to me is that some words have switched themselves. That is to say, uh, a word like whore, which is probably, I'm going to get an explicit rating on this, uh, and I cannot right now think of another word. That's w-h-o-r-e, was spelled and pronounced h-o-r-e for a long time. And it was only uh, because one accent of English speech pronounced it as whore uh, that somebody decided to spell it w-h. For some reason that w-h caught on and everybody uses it. Uh, But it was only for a brief moment in one accent that whore was ever spelled whore. Uh, I had always thought of it as sort of the loss of a wh pronunciation. And there are several words that have that H pronunciation. Who, uh, whore, uh, can you think of another one? I'm sure there are more.
0: I'm going to jump in right here with a list of WH words. Yes, I've got that for you, Phil, but first I have to say something. Listeners, do you notice a change in the quality of my voice? Maybe a little bit. That's because at this point in the recording, my voice stopped being recorded, and that was not a very good thing, uh, because Phil continued to be recorded, and my side of the conversation, which was full of very deep and important things, did not get recorded. So here we are a week later, and we're re-recording the second half of this episode. So uh, it will feel a little different, and it's possible that we'll end up leaving something out or duplicating something that we've already said please forgive us but uh, we're we're making do with technology that kind of screwed up on us so to answer Phil's question uh, here's a list of WH spelled words that are pronounced with an H so who whom whosoever whomever whole wholesome holy whore as you were saying Phil and hooping and whose.
1: So uh, why don't I take over for myself uh, and see (laughs) if I can say what I said last week about these sounds. Uh, There's a really interesting history, at least interesting to me, about some of these words, like the word whore, uh, the word hole. Uh, They came first with H spellings and H pronunciations that There wasn't a point at which they were ever, in terms of their etymology or their pronunciation, "whore" and whole. Whole comes from a word that's very similar to the word hail, which is where we get the word health. Uh, But at some point, because the vowel sound shifted towards an o, some people went so far as to put that lip rounding into their pronunciation. So there was a group, I can't really remember, I'm thinking Kent, but I think I might be making that up, where that was actually pronounced whore and hole. However, the spelling caught on. So people in that region started putting a W in there to recognize the way they were pronouncing it, and it seemed that everybody in the English-speaking world, English writing world, decided that they ought to spell whore and whole with a W, even though they continued to pronounce it in the same way they always had. With an H. Exactly. So I think that covers the history. Uh, I suppose if there are any clever bits of wisdom that we don't cover, we can drop in bits from my recorded side, but I suspect we're going to cover everything now. Yeah. So now I think is the time that we need to talk a little bit
0: about the IPA usage of the upside down W and yeah. the phono- phonological uh, uh, use of HW to represent that. Now, historically, spelling-wise, it was spelled HW up until the 13th Correct. century, and and nobody it's, really has, sorry, anybody, nobody really yeah. has any idea why it switched to WH, um, yeah. except maybe a looked pretty or something to some... <laughs>
1: yeah, and, uh, I, I suppose it looks pretty. Uh, I, I think it's also possible, or we could infer from that spelling change that there was a different pronunciation where uh, an H sound preceded a W sound. I think some people, and we'll discuss this in a moment, uh, really do believe that. I, I don't think that that's necessary. In fact, if you look at the development of the spelling and pronunciation, it was happening from a k-w, uh, not from a h-w, uh, but in any case, the spelling switched around, uh, and if the pronunciation switched around, we have no recordings of that time. Right. Um, now, one, one
0: other thought about, you know, or spelling is that t- th and sh and ch all were digraphs written with two letters with the h after, so maybe it makes sense that wh would f- follow that pattern. Um, that digraphs represent a single sound.
1: Yes, and and they tend to represent a fuzzy, airy, fricative version of the same sort of closure that the plosive would have been. So, t with funny air friction is th, and ph, P-H is a funny, airy, fricative version of p. So there's some sort of logic in the spelling. I don't know of any instance of any. Clever scribe writing that logic down, however, so we'll never no. know. No, we
0: never will. The the so this idea of, of HW, which is the phonological usage yeah. of uh, or how how it appears in phonological texts often. Um, Some sometimes people think of this as HW, so they sort of go ha and get somewhat confused. And so we have to take a moment and review the idea that H represents the sound that follows in a voiceless context. So if I say, if I write in IPA H with the U vowel following, the H is essentially voiceless U, HOO. Um, if I write H before AH, the H is voiceless AH, so I get HA. The H is a different sound in that context. Um, so if we do that to W, HW, then we get a Voiceless
1: w, going into a w,
0: Ooh. and that really um,
1: requires that we not think about h as a separate phoneme, but uh, uh, an effect on another phoneme.
0: Well, that that it's not. I don't. I don't think that's true. But I think that it's the only consonant that has a multiplicity of articulations, that's and uh, th- that that is the nature of the way h is. I- is used in the i p a and it how it is used in language so um that that's an unusual it's a difference isn't it from all the others yeah. but when we when we look at this h w usage it's also the only usage of h making a semi vowel voiceless so we don't have h yod uh going h hu- uh i suppose if you you said human you might argue that it would be a
1: similar to yeah. when. Yeah, I've certainly uh. seen that h y or h j h y spelling of phonetic transcription. I'm getting all mixed up. I've certainly seen that to represent human, and I'm sure we'll come back in a later episode to have a discussion about how that how we would actually transcribe that. But in yes. this case, if you look at hu as a sequence of ha huh followed by wa. You're absolutely right that the ha huh is a huh in the w context. And so that could be a way of describing what is essentially the same action, which is lips rounded forward, back of tongue up, unvoiced airstream.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, now, the su- suggestion is that for those of us who no longer do When where that we use just the plain old W, um, that we have essentially dropped that uh, H quality off the front of what was there already. That there was a moment of voiced W before the vowel, and I guess the the opposing opinion is that we've just switched. We've dropped the usage of a voiceless uh, labiovelar fricative and are now just using the voiced approximate in its place. I think you and I are very comfortable with the idea that it's just a switch, that we, we have uh, replaced one for the other. Um, but I think it's worth saying there are people out there who are arguing for, for this sort of phonotactic change of
1: dropping the H. And for people who want to look it up, the term describing that is glide cluster reduction. Uh, the, the glide cluster being the cluster of H and W uh, being reduced to no H, W. Uh, that seems like a roundabout way to me, and I think to you. Uh, there are other changes that in language that don't represent uh, simplifying of a cluster, uh, but just a change from a voiced to an unvoiced version. Certainly, that's the case in TH, as we discussed in the past, the word this was pronounced this and it became this, it it would be a roundabout way of describing it, that some separate quality of voicelessness was clustered with it. It it just seems peculiar to me. And I do Mm. recognize that because of the special nature of age, it is a sort of location of devoicing. So you could think of it as a cluster, but why? (laughs) In fact, uh, when Dr. Wells introduces this in accents of English, the idea of glide cluster reduction. He sets up the two arguments. I find myself very much in favor of the other one. And he then goes on to say, we'll move forward as though glide cluster reduction is what's going on. So uh, uh, it seems almost an arbitrary choice, uh, but he makes a different choice.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Um, so
0: uh, let's move on, shall we, yes. um, and talk a little bit about uh, the W sounds after stops, particularly after voiceless stops. So if we have a word like twilight, uh, a T-W spelling, um, that W is likely to have some of the voicelessness, the aspiration of the T, twilight. Um, And the question is, is that really... uh, is it the do we actually get some w in there before we get to the i is it completely voiceless yeah. um would that be an appropriate transcription if you were writing it out to use that turn w to represent that
1: w sound there are many shades of hua that if we wanted to be so obsessive as to write every single moment because there has to be some transition period between W and wa if i say quit, the the voicing comes in on the i. isn't there a moment where i is blended with the wha? Perhaps. So I could try to be very, very persnickety and get all of those, or I could simply say, in between this symbol and this symbol, this sound and this sound, something in between happens. But the transition from one consonant to another in connected speech sort of always generates those sort of halfway in between moments. So I personally would find it overly fussy to write w highlight. twilight, even though I can recognize that there's probably a moment of voicing why my lips are forward. I do think in most instances the unvoiced, the turned w, uh, is probably the way to go. That doesn't mean it always happens. It's interesting, and I'm sure you've had this experience as well, to draw students' attention to that, and have them discover that they may already be doing it. Rather than right. saying, you always do it or you must do it, saying, right. can't you recognize that it has happened <laughs> somehow? Yes,
0: and, and it's a possibility that you might want to try. So perhaps in some contexts it's more likely to happen than in others. you notice it more. For instance, following a K in some speakers that when they say quit and quite... That they, particularly if they're being very expressive about it, they might linger on that voiceless w quality uh, to quaff a lovely draft uh, to you know use that voiceless sound. Mm-hmm. Yes, I I have a question for you about a word pronunciation thing. Goody. Do you pronounce the word p u i s s a n c e puissant? Or puissant. Uh, I looked it up in the OED they both are possible yeah um, uh, and uh, you know if it's French wor- roots of course puissant puissance uh, is it's not really a w it's a an u puissance um, so in many ways it's it sort of straddles in the French the u which is sort of like going pew and the W, pui, uh, and so I think that's the justification for the two pronunciations, particularly in Canada, uh, people who are very aware of the French puissant uh, would be likely to say puissant, puissant, um, whereas if they hear puissant, that often throws them for a bit of a loop. Do you have experience with that?
1: Yeah, I would say that all bets are off on some French words that have been in English for so long that they're, uh, I can't guarantee that that's a Norman word, but uh, it's been around in English at least since Shakespeare, we can say. And so, shouldn't it follow the processes of English and transform in that way? It's the fact that it's an unusual word that means that it hasn't necessarily been affected by that. We don't use it in daily life, so we're sort of reinventing how to pronounce it based on what we know about French or what we know about English. And so if it were appearing in a a Shakespeare play, one might have a clue based on the scansion whether we needed to say puissant or puissant uh, or puissant. Well, one can say
0: puissant
1: and have just as many syllables. Yeah, that is absolutely uh, true. And and so it finally comes uh, down to what you feel like. And it, you could put make that a personal judgment or you could say what I want to imply to the audience is some sort of uh, visceral sinewy. And to me, puissant has that quality. Uh, whereas puissant has pew, which has other associations. It seems a little <laughs> foppish to me. Uh, now, If you're saying it in Henry V, though, I'm afraid that you may sound French, which isn't really. (laughs) If you don't want to be supporting the French in that particular play, Um, right. So again, it's a decision, and I, I I think it's a decision. You also have to uh, to take
0: into consideration your audience. That uh, if you're you're doing it in Canada, a Canadian audience might get puissant. Uh, more yeah. than they would get puissant. So yeah, um, yeah, uh, interesting. Uh, I just saw it in my list of words of pu words, um, and I I thought, well, that's interesting because for me I learned it as a pu word. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's move on. The I think the last thing I wanted to talk about about was that so many of these potentially hua words are question words. Yeah, and we have what uh, what is actually known in the linguistic community as WH questions, Um, those questions um, that begin with words like which, when, where, why, in English. Interestingly enough, the linguistic community has used that term, obviously, from English for those kinds of questions in other languages. Um, And it's interesting, I think, to linguists because WH questions are different from other questions in that they... Uh, lack a rising intonation at the end. They actually have a
1: fall at the end of them. And so as a group, they are a bit different. Yeah, it's odd that that has caught on. And, and I'm sure that you ran into it as well as I, when we were researching for the show, WH throws up this uh, this other use. But it doesn't necessarily refer to the pronunciation. We could just as easily say interrogatives, and we'd be around yes. the problem. Absolutely.
0: Now, one thing worth saying is that for many people who do use the hua sound on interrogatives, they drop the hua pronunciation when the word is in a reduced setting. So, if the question is which one are you using, uh they they would use that hua sound. But if they were really asking which one did you want and uh which, which of these two did you want? it's likely that that hua pronunciation would just reduce down to a
1: W sound. And this is a pretty normal process of doing less, of reducing. And we might equally say the same thing about the H in have. I have to go. I have to go. We're using the full and sort of archetypal version of the sound uh, when we want to really put some expression into it and then we back off of it otherwise. Uh, There are plenty of instances of that where uh, there's a sort of ideal or dictionary form or uh, internal dictionary form that only gets deployed when we're really pointing to the word. However, Mm -hmm. for me, I don't have that option because the system I grew up, or rather I don't have that built into my system. I certainly have the option as an actor, Uh, but it doesn't make sense to me to say, what uh, because it's not something i grew up with
0: if you're playing a character who does it though i think it's really great to know about the possibility of Absolutely. reduction because uh uh using huá as an emphatic device is um i think it can be fun for for a, particularly if you're playing some sort of pedant um and <laughs> yes. i think you and i both would get cast playing those <laughs> kinds of roles so, uh, you and I, that's, that's money in our pocket. Exactly. We should, we should be perfecting those skills. Well, I think we've come to the end of our what and what episode. So, it's been fun as always, Bill, And I look forward to doing this again next week.